Welcome to the Sun's Jam Session Podcast on the Bright Side of the Sun Podcast Network. Thank you ever so much for pressing play. My name is John. His name is Matthew. How you doing, sir? Good. John, how are you doing? Doing good, my friend. Doing very, very well. Thank you, always, as always, for joining me via Zoom for this podcast. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for pressing play. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast by pressing that little button wherever you're getting this pod. And make sure that you follow us on Twitter at Suns Jam. You can follow us on Instagram at Suns Jam. And you can always email the pod, session at gmail.com. We're actually going to take a trip down memory lane, as we tend to do here on the Suns Jam Session podcast. And we're going to talk about a team that not a lot of people know about, right, Matthew? No one knows about this team. Well, I did not. Um, but when I go back and I ask my dad, I'm like, I'm watching the 83-84 season. And he's like, oh, you know what? I remember that team. Really great players. Why the hell did we not win a championship? I'm like, I don't know, dad. And I don't know why I do this pod because it's very depressing. But uh, a lot of people don't. I stumbled upon it by looking up Alvin Adams. And I was just like, oh, what's this team? 41 and 41 making the playoffs, almost going to the championship. So I had to take a deep dive along with you. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you bringing up this team because I think it's fun to delve into the past. And I had no idea about the 83-84 Suns. You know, when you think about the Suns and the playoffs, it's, it's a complicated relationship as of late, right? Like their relationship, it mirrors very closely my relationship to Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. There, there is none. So well, Yeah, why would you want that though? I mean, <laughs> just joking. I, I don't know. That's just the celebrity I picked. <laughs> Way to kill my joke, man. Uh, There's a lot of times in Suns history where they've made the playoffs. Between 1976 and 2010, the 35 seasons, they made the playoffs 28 times. So there's a lot of teams that you remember. You remember the 92-93 Suns. You remember the 04-05 Suns, the 06-07 Suns. You remember the 89-90 and Suns. I mean, there's a lot of great teams in there that were close to winning it all. And then there's teams that you just kind of pass over. One team that I think we pass over a lot is the 0506 Suns, the team that went into the Western Conference Finals and lost to the Dallas Mavericks, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we always talk about the 0405 Suns. We always talk about the 0607 Suns. But what about the team in between that lost to the Western Conference Finals? Yeah, that is, actually is overlooked. Um, for some reason, I have no idea why. Um, that was one of my favorite teams, of course. I know they did uh, a few uh, mixing and matching before that season and made a few sons upset. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of upset, my dad again, he remembers these teams from 83, 84. And it's funny because he's just telling me he lost nights of sleep just thinking about this team and keeping them up all night and telling them to get the freaking rebound. So <laughs> same stuff, but different decade. Yeah, seriously. So without further ado, I'm going to open up an ice cold beer and we're going to talk about the 83, 84 Phoenix Suns squad. So to understand the 1983-1984 Suns, you really have to kind of go back just one year to understand who this team was, okay? The Phoenix Suns were coached by John McLeod back then, and he's the coach who actually got the Suns to the finals back in 75 and 76. And in the 1982-83 season, they were a team that posted a 53-29 and record that year. They were a great team. It was their sixth consecutive appearance in the playoffs. 
And they ended with the second best record in the Western Conference. But seeing as they were in the same division as the Showtime Lakers with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson, they were considered the three seed because the San Antonio Spurs also had a record of 53-29 and 29 that year. So unfortunately, the Suns end up with the number three overall seed in 82-83, and that put them behind George Gervin's number two-seeded Spurs and Kareem and Magic's number one-seeded Lakers. And because of that, what's really interesting is this is the last year, 82-83 was, where the playoffs were six teams making the playoffs in each conference. There's 23 total teams in the NBA, mm-hmm. and you had six teams from each conference make the playoffs, and the way that they did it was the first two seeds got a first-round bye. So simply by the fact that the Suns played in the same division as the Lakers, they ended up being the three seed. Because if you look at the regular season, the Suns beat the Spurs three out of five times that year. And it's crazy mm-hmm. going back and looking at it. It's like, oh, yeah, they played them five times. You know, So, I mean, they really, yeah. really got to know who the, the Spurs were. But because of that, again, we end up with the number three seed. We end up playing the number six seed, uh, Denver Nuggets. And this was a best of three series back then. And the Nuggets had Kiki Vandeweghe, Alex English, and Danny Isel. And they both scored over 20 points a game and beat the Suns two to one. And then, boom, Suns are out of the playoffs. So that's how the 82-83 season ended. And that's who the Suns were entering the 83-84 season. Tell me a little bit about the 1983 NBA draft. First thing I thought about going to the draft, um, I was looking, I was like, I wonder where the Suns pick. Which pick did they have? Was it in the first round? Did they have a top five pick? I don't know. Maybe they had it in a trade or something. Because I was thinking of one guy, of course, because of the documentary that was recently released, Michael Jordan. I'm like, I wonder if this guy was maybe would have been available today's in today's day, just because he would have been able to enter the NBA draft. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking of things like that. But it looked like the Suns actually didn't even have a first round draft pick in this draft, did they? No, they didn't. Yeah. So. <laughs> so who they had or who they got with the 28th pick in the second round uh, was uh, Rod Foster from UCLA. He only played three years. And then yeah. after that, I don't know who they picked. <laughs> well, what was interesting about the 83 draft was the fact that right before the draft, the, the draft is on June 28th, 1983. And the night before the draft, Suns general manager Jerry Colangelo pulled the trigger on a trade to add more size to the team. And when you go back and you think of basketball, anything prior to about 2008, size is the number one thing that matters in the NBA. It's all about getting the big dominant center, especially if you go back in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So much of the game is played within 15 feet of the rim that everything is predicated on having size. So just like the Suns always do, it appears. They're always seeking size. We're always finesse teams who can't rebound, and we're looking for size. Colangelo pulls a, pulls a trigger on a deal the night before the draft. Uh, well, initially, the Suns had traded their first-round pick and swapped it with Cleveland. They traded a guy to Cleveland, and with their first-round pick, they got a Cleveland's pick in, in return. So the Suns would have had the 21st overall pick in the 83 draft. They trade that to Boston the night before the draft with Dennis Johnson for center Rick Roby. Now, Rick Mm -hmm. Roby was the number three overall pick in the 78 draft, and he was a national champion at the University of Kentucky, and they they retired his number there. I think he's number 53. 
And he had won a uh, title with the Celtics in 81, but he was a backup to Robert Parrish, and he was averaging about 4.3 points per game in 1982 and 1983. So the Suns, in an effort to add some size, they give up Dennis Johnson. And Dennis Johnson is a, is a great talent. He's a great defensive guard. He's somebody who five out of his first seven years in the NBA was on the all-defensive first team. You know, he led the Suns in CIS in the 82-83 season. So, you know, it, right before the draft, boom. And, and what they do is when, and when they trade Dennis Johnson, they also give up their first-round pick, which was Cleveland's pick, number 28 pick. And in return, they get Rick Roby and two draft picks. And that gave them the 28th yeah. overall pick in the second round, which, as you mentioned, was uh, Rod Foster. Yeah. And uh, Rick Roby actually was not very welcomed by the Suns fans. He uh, overwhelmingly was not hated, but disliked for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, he was just a big guy that came in, and he was more of a physical guy. But his physicality didn't take off till later in the second half part of the season. So you didn't see that for a long time until the Suns actually started playing better, getting in the playoffs. We'll talk about that later. But his, his play just didn't show up. So the Suns fans are very unhappy with this trade, I feel like. And it's funny because I was watching the uh, game for the second round. You watch it too, right? Uh, the yeah. Utah Jazz game. Yeah. And uh, they even mentioned it in there how the Suns fans didn't like this guy until recently towards the end of the year. So it just reminds me of, you know, I forget like the Suns fans cared so much back then. You know what I mean? You know, you see them in the stands, but they don't seem like real fans. They look more like... A lot of them look like kind of like serial killers. <laughs> I know it's got well, that 80s. Close up. It's, like, it's they all look like nasty. a bunch of uh, Ted Bundy 80s. Like they do. It really is a weird look going it's back not, and watching those old yeah. 80s games. <laughs> you don't want get, you don't want to have like the sky cam flying too closely to those fans. <laughs> um, but maybe it, would ju- it maybe it just had to do with uh, him not coming out being physical. Um, first part of the year was maybe he's a Capricorn and it takes him a long a while <laughs> to figure things out. Uh, a la LeBron James, and uh, that's my only. Uh, conclusion to that is maybe he's a Capricorn and that's why he wasn't so welcomed and they didn't start out so great. Well, and think about it. If you were a fan though, I mean, you have your starting point guard who's an all defensive guy and you trade him for a backup center. Yeah. And you give up a couple of picks, which I, I don't blame the Suns for their lack of draft picks or, or navigating the draft really well back in 83, because again, they're a team that was tied for the number two overall record in the Western conference the year before. They're not trying to build their team through the draft. They're trying to find those missing pieces. I just don't understand how giving up Dennis Johnson was the answer. I no, don't. It, it's, it's not only you. It's, it was everybody at the time, and I think it was just a bad move at the time. And maybe, maybe it wasn't at the time, but when he came out to play the first half, like I said, he wasn't living up to his expectations, and that really hurt them. Yep. So as we mentioned, the Suns with the 28th overall pick chose Rod Foster, who was a point guard from UCLA. And because Dennis Johnson left a void at the point guard position, Foster was the person who they thought they could bring in as a backup to Kyle Macy, who was the starting point guard on those Suns teams back in the early 80s. What was interesting about Rod Foster is he was the starting point guard as a freshman on the 1980 UCLA Bruins National Championship runner-up team. Here's what's interesting about that team. That team all their victories were later voided in like 1984 due to infractions and in, including some financial arrangements and, and giving a recruit a t-shirt. 
I actually read that what? like the New York times back in like 84, they were talking about it. UCLA gave some recruits a t-shirt and yeah. it was, it was recruiting violations and they wiped out their entire 1980 season in which they were runner up to the uh, uh, Louisville Cardinals for the national. That's all they gave away. I feel like it yeah. would be like a t-shirt, maybe like a gold bar or something, yeah. you know, something from back then. I don't or, know. Or, or like the, maybe the top selling car of 1983, which was an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. Like maybe yeah. they gave away one of those and it was like a big deal, but no, it was a t-shirt. Oh, so. wow. Well, but you that's... take my t-shirts every game too. You know, <laughs> I, like whenever I go to the bathroom, t-shirt time, you always steal my t-shirts. That's on you, dude. You got to stick around for t-shirt time. You always are like, I, <laughs> I, I always right now is the time to go to the bathroom. It's always when the t-shirts come. It is. Man. I hear it. As soon as I'm in the bathroom, dude, I hear t-shirt time. You just, you run out like pissing on yourself. I, like, I, go. I do. <laughs> my pants down. <laughs> uh, a couple other things on the 83 draft real quick. Only two Hall of Famers were drafted. That was Ralph Sampson and Clyde Drexler. Okay. And Clyde Drexler actually went number 14 overall to the Blazers. Ralph Sampson, who was the number one pick out of Virginia, was chosen by the Rockets. Okay. And was James Worthy the year before? Yes. Is that when he was? Okay. Yes. I wasn't sure if it was that year or this year. Okay. Yeah. So James Worthy was a junior when Michael Jordan was a freshman at the University of North Carolina. And then the Suns, what's interesting is the Suns had 10 picks in this draft because there were 10 rounds. They had two second round picks and then like a third, fourth, fifth, what have you. The second overall pick that they made was a guy named, I believe it's Paul Williams out of the Arizona State University Sun Devils. And between him and every other guy who was drafted by the Suns that year, do you know what they all have in common? Nope, I don't. What is it? Zero minutes played in the NBA. Oh, okay. So that's why we're not going to go too far into the draft yeah. and who those actual draft picks were because you've never heard of any of them because none of them ever played. Yeah, and that's that's basically half the second round picks nowadays are zero minutes in the NBA. So yeah, but I mean, ten rounds on ten with, with twenty three teams. Jeez, man. yeah. So that's it for the draft. What about other uh, preseason transactions? Do you have anything there? Uh, no, just to wrap it up around the league, what happened the year before. I have a little bit of like around the league what was going on. The Sixers won the NBA championship the year before. Moses Malone was the MVP. They had the best record of the year. So best Sixers team probably of all time, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, That's and Moses Malone done. came over from Houston to join that team. And why? Because they needed size. Because they were having a hard time. They had lost, I believe, two years prior to the Lakers in the finals. So they needed size. So they get Moses Malone over to the Sixers. You got Moses Malone. You got Dr. J. And then they swept yeah. the Lakers, right? In the 1983 NBA Finals? I believe so, yeah. 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 Um, but that's my around the league <laughs> information. <laughs> well, so there you go. So that's, that's where the Lakers were. As far as other transactions coming into yeah. the season, and one of the reasons that I believe that the Suns gave up Dennis Johnson so easily is because – the guy that they traded to get Dennis Johnson from in 1980 from the Seattle Supersonics was a free agent. And that was Paul Westfall. Oh, okay. Paul Westfall was a fan favorite. He led the Suns uh, to the 1975-76 NBA Finals. I believe he played in Phoenix four or five years uh, before they traded him to Seattle. And he led the Suns in scoring every single year he was a member of the team. So he was clearly a, f- a fan favorite. So Colangelo makes the trade on June 27th to get Rick Roby and get rid of Dennis Johnson. The draft happens on June 28th. And I believe it was September 27th, 1983 is where they sign Paul Westfall's a free agent who had been waived by the Knicks just uh, earlier that year. So he's back in Phoenix. 
they make another couple of transactions throughout the year. In October of 83, they trade away a guy who was named David Thirdkill. What a great last name, Thirdkill. That kill. is really good, man. It's like a Call of Duty Third last name. Kill. I'm David Yeah, that, that's Third a kill. kill streak right there, right? Yeah. It starts at three. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so that's perfect. He, he gets another one. He gets his UAV. So Yeah, that, what but, a great last name. Not, but they, a lot better than Lissy. I mean. <laughs> third kill. But, uh, <laughs> but they trade him to the Pistons for a couple of future draft picks. And one of those future draft picks was actually a 1986 second rounder that turned out to be Jeff Hornacek. So that oh. kind of plays. And then uh, in December, the Suns waved a guy named Johnny High. His nickname was Sky. They called him Sky High. They waved him, and then they brought in one of Rod Foster's former UCLA teammates, and that was small forward Mike Sanders. And that kind of, from a transaction standpoint, uh, is where the Suns stood midway through the season. Uh, what's interesting about Johnny Sky High is he actually died in June of 1987 when his sports car hit a traffic pole at the intersection of 20th Street and Jefferson. He was legally drunk oh, at the time. Man. Yeah, so he was he was drunk and high or just drunk? Uh, they just said drunk, but it's like 3:30 oh, okay. in the morning. So yeah, but then you look at the the 83-84 roster, and we'll go through some of these names, and we'll spend more time on some than we do on others. But if you just look at opening night, October 29th, 1983, here were the Suns' starting five. They had point guard Kyle Macy, who was a fourth-year point guard who's shown a lot of promise. A solid start, technically sound, not overly athletic, uh, but was definitely a solid start at point guard. He'd start 45 games on the year, but played in all 82 of them. And he averaged 10.1 points per game, 4.3 assists per game. And he shot 83% from the line, which was one of his worst years from the line. He's second in Suns history all time from yeah. the line. So He reminded me a lot of uh, Ty Jerome bringing the ball up and down the court. Basically, I don't know if it was a thing back then, but you would bring it up to like the three-point line and you would just stand there and pick up the dribble. Yeah. So it reminded me a lot of Ty Jerome backing the ball up, basically all the way up down the court. Uh, never really running full strength or fully, fully straight on. Uh, but uh, he reminded me a lot of him. And you never really got to see a close-up of Kyle Macy. So I was like, who is this dude? Like, I don't even know what he looks like. So I could never see in the two games I watched, like a close-up of what he looks like. Now I, saw, I see a picture. He's black and white. I don't know. It wasn't really <laughs> worth it. So I don't even know. What's interesting about Kyle Macy is he led the Suns with three-pointers made. He had 23 on the year. Wow. Isn't that nuts? That is pretty insane, man. And there's a lot of high scoring. I wanted to go over this a little bit. There's a lot of there was a lot of high scoring uh, teams that year. Mm-hmm. More than today's game, they only averaged three three point attempts per game. I know, isn't that crazy? And they, yeah, they they beat what we have today. They were averaging more points than the teams today. So that's that blew me out of the water, dude. Yeah, and I think a big part of it was just that size down low. I mean, that was the offense. It was come down, like you said, the point guard would come down the court, stop at the three point line, pick up the dribble, pass. They'd look for as many entry passes as they could into the interior. And then whoever was down there, if he had a mismatch, he would just lay it in. And it was just, it was quicker that way. Yeah, it was really quick, really, really quick. So the starting shooting guard that year was Walter Davis. He was a seventh year guard from the University of North Carolina, the Graham, the man with the velvet touch. He was an all star in four of his first seasons, but those were his first four seasons. So entering the 83-84 season, he missed the All-Star game the previous two years. And he was actually fourth in the NBA this year with 86.3% from the line. 
So Walter Davis, we'll talk about him a lot later. The small forward is a guy who I really enjoyed watching when I went back and I watched what little highlights I could of the 83-84 squad. And that was Maurice Lucas. His nickname was Mo and Luke. And he was in his seventh NBA season, although he played in the ABA before he joined the NBA as well. And he was 30 years old this year, and he was known as the enforcer. Led the team in rebounds per game with 9.7. He was an all-star the previous season with the Suns. And he was actually a member of the 1977 Portland Trailblazers team that won the NBA Finals with Bill Walton. And he led the team in scoring. The guy was just a brick shit house and a physical guy. Again, the Suns in 83-84 were trying to become a more physical team and get rid of finesse. And with people like Mo Luke, you could execute that game plan. Yeah, the enforcer, um, he was basically, he was even finesse, I would say, watching him. Because he stuck out. Both games I watched, he really stuck out. And he was mm-hmm. someone I never even heard of playing the game. And uh, he was an all-star this year. Uh, the year before, he was an all-star with the Suns. Um, but his numbers barely dipped. I'm not sure why he didn't make the all-star game this year. But he carried the Suns at times in both games and made two huge free throws against the uh, Utah Jazz um, in the overtime to yeah. give the Suns a win. Yep. Um, but Finesse, I feel like I, he was huge. He was a big dude. It says he was 6'9". I feel like he was seven foot playing. Uh, he didn't care about his defender and was very, very confident in his game, it looked like. A nice jump shot, too. Yeah, the nice little fadeaway. He had the moves. Mm-hmm. Fun to watch. That's yeah. uh, Maurice Lucas. And then uh, the power forward for that team is somebody that a lot of people know, and that was the third-year forward from Clemson, uh, Larry Nance who at that time was getting better every year. He actually started every game that season, the only Phoenix Sun to do so. And he was kind of the future of the franchise. And you look at some of these draft picks that the Suns had that made this team, and they really hit on a lot of draft picks back then. That's one thing I noticed. You look at Kyle Macy, who was a solid point guard. You look at uh, Larry Nance, who was a great pick and was blossoming to a great player, and they would end up trading him to get uh, KJ in 1988. Uh, But again, I mean, they just – they hit on the draft back then. Yeah, they really hit with Larry Nance, too. Uh, He's a lot longer than I remember ever Mm -hmm. seeing him play. Um, This was the year he – before – actually, the year after this year, he made the All-Star game. But this is the year where he won the first slam dunk competition – against Julius Irving. Yep. And uh, that was a big dunk competition. I know his son wore the throwback Suns jersey. Uh, was it last year in the dunk contest mm-hmm. when he was in it? Yep. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, but he was better than people thought. And he even led the league fourth in blocks, which was really yeah. surprising to me. I, I would have never thought that about him. But again, it just shows you the length of that team because he was your power yeah. forward. You had Maurice Lucas as your small forward. And this dude was like six, nine, six, six 10, <laughs> I know. you know, I mean, it was just, it was all about size back then. It yeah. was all about size. You look at the starting center on opening day and that was Alvin Adams and Alvin Adams, who's in the sun's ring of honor uh, was a ninth year center from Oklahoma. He actually won the 1976 rookie of the year, but he was on the back end of his athletic ability He actually didn't start as many games at center. And by the time the playoffs came around, he was coming in off the bench. And he's a great guy to have come in off the bench because beautifully technically sound, great rebounder, great shot blocker. Uh, And he's the one who got the start on opening day. But again, you know, back end of his career kind of guy. Yeah. 
this season he was uh he kind of fell off this season it was mm-hmm. one of the better seasons the Suns had in the playoffs but I mean during the regular season you could see he only started 13 games yeah played in 70 but his numbers dipped dramatically and then after that he picked it back up a little bit for a few more good seasons um but it surprised me seeing him come off the bench and surprised seeing he only made an all-star game once I would have never known that yeah especially considering I mean I I believe he's the all-time leading rebounder in Suns history and you know his name's up in Talking Stick Resort Arena and he's one of the fabled Suns who comes from that era of Phoenix Suns basketball that I just don't know really much about so as I researched the 83-84 squad I was like oh Alvin Adams is the starting center on opening day okay and then as I start to analyze the season i was like oh man he was like a role player at this point you know that's kind of an interesting yeah half his half his career he started like yeah and he came off the bench so i (laughs) i would have never known that (laughs) me neither that's why i love doing this i just i would have never known yeah amen so you look at the rest of the squad uh james edwards was the center who ended up actually starting 67 games that season uh Mm -hmm. he was seven feet tall and, you know, played a lot in the playoffs as well. So he was one of those guys who the Suns relied on pretty exclusively. You had Paul Westfall, as I mentioned. You had Rick Roby, as I mentioned. You had uh, Rod Foster, as I mentioned. A couple other guys that they had on the team. Uh, Mike Sanders, who I also mentioned. They had uh, Ford Alvin Scott, who the Suns actually had drafted in the 1977 NBA draft, but he didn't play very much uh, this season. He'd come in a couple games I watched. He came mm-hmm. in kind of late. And then you had Ford Charles Pittman, who was a second-year guy out of the University of Maryland. And I think that's it as far as the squad is concerned. Yeah, a lot of dudes in and off the bench. Uh, I didn't really know. Uh, Scott was a really uh, styling-looking dude, though. He was. That fro he, he had? Yeah, he, he looked great. And I, I love the look in the NBA. That was, a, that was why I love Josh Jackson coming in. Uh, but I just, <laughs> for some reason, he stuck out more than the others. Uh, so he looked like he would wear a suit very well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So then you go into the 1983-84 season, and I just have some of the highlights from the season. So, you know, we mentioned opening night was October 29th, 1983. The Suns lost to Dallas 120-103, to 103, and so began the most average season in Suns history. The Suns went 41-41 and 41 in 83-84, and it was the first time they ended 500 in team history. They would go on and do it again in 96 and in the shortened 2012 season as well. So this was a very mundane team. And again, you got to remember, they won 53 games before. So the Dennis Johnson trade essentially cost them 12 wins that year. And, you know, they had a hard time. You go back and you, you look at their game log and it's like, win, loss, win, win, loss, loss. I mean, it's very 500. You look at uh, the transition from, 83 to 84 the new year's time and that's what uh you know they were kind of riding high at that time because from december 29th to january 2nd they were the number four seed in the west they fought their way all the way up to the four seed and how did they respond with their worst losing streak of the season they lost five games from january 3rd to january 10th and they fell back into ninth place which was just outside the playoffs which were different this year in the fact that they added the two extra teams and took away buys from the first two seeds yeah so so the goal was to hit the eighth seed so they're riding high you know they're 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 playing average basketball but they get all the way up to the four seed and then boom the worst losing streak of the year they lose five in a row then then of course you have the all-star game and this is where walter davis made his return to the all-star game he was the last guy voted in to the all-star game 
He was averaging 21.2 points per game at that point on 51% field goal shooting. And that got the Greyhound into his fifth All-Star game. And then, as you mentioned, Larry Nance beats Dr. J for the first ever slam dunk competition. Did you go back and watch that slam dunk competition? I didn't. I've seen highlights before, but in this occasion, I didn't actually go back and watch it. I've seen both the dunks. Uh, I didn't see who actually was competing in the dunk contest at the time. Uh, did you have that information or? That I don't. I just know it was Dr. J. Yeah, that's all we need to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I We talk about it on the uh, My Top Three Sons Dunkers. I go really in depth on who they he went against because he was an honorable mention. But for yeah. – uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I try I cut that information out. Uh, the most points the team scored that season was 146 against Denver on March 20th, 1984. It was a rematch of the previous year's playoffs, and Alex English for the Nuggets actually dropped 38 points on the Suns. But the Suns were led by Mo Lucas's 23 points and 14 boards, and eight players on the Suns scored in at least 10 points. Eight players. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing that you have to give this Sun squad was their depth. They they had a plethora of guys that could come off the bench and contribute. So they weren't the greatest team in the fact that they had the best starting five, but they had a really solid starting 10. Or not starting 10, but a really solid, you know, five yeah. plus five. So they could always bring guys in there, which we'll talk about a little bit in that Utah series you know, they could just bring guys in to beat other guys up. And that was kind of their strategy. Yeah, they shared the ball very, very well, it felt like. It wasn't any kind of uh, one one player, you know, it's my ball. Even even Walter Davis at the time, I felt like he he made some big shots in those playoffs. But also, there were other players that stepped up, at, like Maurice Lucas. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The 6'9", small forward that takes the ball, steals in, goes <laughs> – goes yeah. down and dunks it you know what I mean so it's just a really random weird team to watch just because of what I'm so used to nowadays uh I'm not sure if it'll work nowadays with what they have probably not they'd probably be like a Utah Jazz team or something but um for some reason they pulled it off and to end the season they won on the six game win streak winning eight out of nine games uh yep. going into the playoffs so they started out hot I mean they ended hot started the playoffs hot and they were basically kind of like a Cinderella team, right? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, again, no one expected much from this team. You look at their ranks on the season. They were eighth in points per game out of 23 teams. They were 10th in offensive rating. They were 14th in opponent points per game and defensive rating. They were second field goal percentage and three points attempted, 20th in rebounding, and they were 31 and 10 at home, but 10 and 31 on the road. So an, an average team that... You know, on March 31st, 1984, they were 35 and 41. They just lost to the Lakers. They were the eighth seed in the playoffs, and they were only up two and a half games on Golden State. But as you mentioned, they finished the year on a 6-0 run, moves them up to the sixth seed, their longest winning streak of the year, and they're hot going into the playoffs. So not a lot of teams really probably expected much from Phoenix, but the team was playing well together. They gelled at, like, literally the exact right time going into the playoffs yeah and the big reason like i met like i said before is rick roby he really stepped up his play mm-hmm. um i feel like that was probably the only missing piece like we said the season was lost because of the trade for dennis that we gave away dennis johnson and that was probably the only reason why they dipped so badly this year and then they finally got what they needed out of rick roby i was thinking too watching the playoffs the playoff games i'm like were these teams overlooking the suns in a way 
like looking ahead to the Lakers, you know, looking ahead to the bigger, bigger teams, that might've been a reason why they skated by a couple series. Well, and you want to talk about the first series? Cause the, the first series, the Suns come in as a six seed and they play the number three seed Portland trailblazers. So they're going up against the trailblazers who they had met in the first round of the playoffs in 1979 and the Suns had won two to one and they were going against a rookie Clyde Drexler. And what was interesting is he wasn't starting. He was coming in off the bench. The Blazers had names like Darnell Valentine, Michael Thompson, Calvin Natt, and Jim Paxson. Jim Paxson, who was John Paxson's older brother, was actually named All-NBA second team that year. So they're oh, wow. going, Yeah, so they're going against, you know, kind of a, a tough Portland Trailblazers team that had earned the number three seed. And they also had a guy on the bench who was a second-year guard named Lafayette Lever. And his nickname was Fat. So it was Fat Lever. Oh. Do, you, do you know where he went to college? <laughs> yes. Uh, no, where'd he go? ASU? ASU, yeah. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, Fat Lever went to ASU. Oh, and, wow. And, and he was really good. He was really good. But the reason that he got pushed out of Portland is because Clyde Drexler became really, really good. Uh, but these are the same teams that would match up in the 1990 Western Conference Finals. The Blazers would win that series and go on to lose to the bad boy Detroit Pistons. But this is one of those back-and-forth series that was so – 1983-1984 Suns-esque, right? The Suns come out and they, they shock Portland by winning game one, 113 to 106. And yet Paul Westfall was actually the starting point guard in that game. Kyle Macy wasn't. James Edwards led the team with 23 points. The Suns bench outscored the Blazers 25 to 9. So there's that depth of this team shutting down the Blazers. And Clyde the Glide actually had zero points and was 0 for 4 in that game. The Suns shot 59% from the field, and combined, the teams went 0 for 4 from downtown. So the next game, the Blazers come out, and then they win game two. You know, and they kind of exert their dominance in this game. You know, Walter Davis had 23 points, but the Suns get killed on the boards, 43 to 31. And then the series shifts, shifts to Phoenix, and the Suns win game three. So Suns win, Suns lose. Suns win game three, 106 to 103. And they were actually down by seven entering the fourth quarter. And after a great game two off the bench, John McLeod chose to start Kyle Macy in this game, and he didn't play very well. And then Paul Westfall responded very well with 14 off the bench in 13 minutes. The bench put pressure on the Blazers' bench by forcing the issue, and Mike Sanders and Paul Westfall both went six for six for the line in game three against the Blazers in the first round. And again, it just goes to show you that that depth that the Suns were trying to obtain, they had it. Game four, the Blazers win, so it goes to game five. And that's in Portland. They have the home court advantage. The Suns end up winning 117 to 105. Yeah, that was like the biggest breakaway game too because they were so close the whole series. Yeah, really, every really, game was. Really close games. Um, so it, you see that in series. Well, like it'll be back and forth really close and close and close. And then the team that's going to win the series always seems to pull away in like game five or game seven. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way I always see it. Um, maybe even game six, the team will pull away and then beat the other team by at least like 10 or 15 points. Uh, that's what you had in this series. And then you move on to the Utah Jazz series. Yes. Um, the number two seeded Utah Jazz. Yeah. Very crazy. Uh, just it's, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I didn't know a lot of these players either with Utah and uh, Adrian Dantley. Yeah. Dude, that guy's a fucking baller. So then you, you roll up on this team and you're like Dantley. So 
it didn't really ring a bell. I, I've read Book of Basketball. I'm sure he's in the top 50 because of the numbers I saw from this guy. But I had no idea what I was going to watch. And he's actually a smaller guy that can shoot from anywhere. He had like a jump hook and all that. Mm-hmm. So he, had, he was like a Swiss Army knife down there, just basically shooting from wherever he wants. And um, it's crazy just to pull these guys out and just look them up and uh, see what they can you know, do on the court. But also, too, it's like they're facing a Suns team. You think they would win? I mean, from what Utah did during the regular season, you would think this would be an easy series for Utah. But the Suns, I mean, they pulled up with a three and one, a three to one lead mm-hmm. in the series, mm-hmm. which was hard to do. I mean, even Game Four, we watched it. You can see like that was a hard. They probably should have lost that game. Besides Walter Davis, I mean, he made that miraculous three to tie the game yes. to put into overtime. But besides that, you would think, like, Utah would just take the Suns in the series, which is not the case. Yeah, I mean, they were led, like you said, by Adrian Dantley, who actually won the 83-84 Comeback Player of the Year. He led the league in scoring that year. He was all-NBA second team. He came up seventh in in the MVP voting. Led the league, like I said, he had 30.6 points per game. And he's actually a member of the Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 2008. So the Suns are going against this team, who is the number two seed, won over 50 games. Uh, they beat Denver in the previous round, uh, three games to two themselves. So they were struggling a little bit coming into the series. And again, they're going against the Suns, who are playing well. They won the last six. They upset Portland. You know, you think the Jazz could have had some sort of game plan against them. And they had Coach Frank Layton, who was actually the 1984 Coach of the Year, and he just couldn't get it done. And what was interesting is you talk about size, right? The Utah Jazz had like the biggest dude in the league. They had yeah. Mark Eaton. And this dude is a weird story, okay? Seven foot four center for the Utah Jazz, who wasn't really into basketball. And he actually attended the Arizona Automotive Institute and became a mechanic. And then somebody's like, dude, you got to play basketball. So he ended up playing at Cypress College in Orange County, California and was drafted by the Suns in 1979, but chose to stay in college, and he transferred to UCLA. And he only played like 10 games in his senior year, was drafted by the Jazz in 82, and he ended up playing his entire 11-year career with the Jazz, and he won Defensive Player of the Year in 1985 and 1989. So that's who they're going, they're going up against. They're going up against Adrian Dantley, who is this scoring machine who, like you said, can score in any different kind of way. He had a jump shot. He had a really weird free throw. They showed the free throw. Every time he shoot a free throw, it was like he was bowling. Like, he, you know, he, he, the way he cradled the ball. Yeah. And did it was this very, weird move. It was annoying. Really, really, really. If you saw his free throw, you would think, oh, he probably doesn't shoot the ball very well. But yeah, he did. And he didn't look 6'5". I know it says he's 6'5", but maybe because everyone was so huge in the lane, that's yeah. why he looked so little. <laughs> so maybe never mind. Maybe he was 6'5". But he looked a lot littler than what I thought he would look. For some reason, when I think of shooters now, I feel like, Shooters are at least six, 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 seven. I don't know why. I just think every shooter in the league that's great is uh, not a Kevin Durant, but you know they're always floating on that six, eight, six, seven kind of bubble. Yeah, but again, when you have like a seven foot four guy standing in the middle of the lane, you know you look really, really tiny. And as Matthew yeah. mentioned, like if you get a chance, go onto YouTube and you can actually watch game four of the Western Conference semifinals in 1984 between these two teams. And you get to see Walter Davis make one of the great shots in Suns history that nobody talks about. No one. That that was an impressive, they need a three pointer just to tie the game because if they don't, the series is tied. Yeah. 
he comes and he hits a, an amazing three-pointer, sends it to OT. The Suns win 111 to 110 and take a demanding three to one series lead on the Jazz. When they were down by three and they had the six seconds, I'm like, okay, so this has to be a great shot. I'm like, how come I have never seen this before? Like, who's going to make it? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was going to be Walter Davis. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, I thought maybe it'd be like two possessions. They got, you know, a free throw and then a two-pointer. But it was a crazy three. He like kind of, when he shot it, it wasn't a great look, but it oh, was no. just, the guy was all over him. He kind of shot it over his right shoulder yeah. and just floated it up there. And it was nothing but net, man. But what was great about it was the camera angle because when he shot it, it was you could see that it was going in. But you could see like his shot as he's like fading away with the guy's shoulder right there and everything. I mean, it's just it was such a, a great camera angle uh, and, and a great shot to be made. Yeah. And as we mentioned a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, like go back without a doubt and watch that game. If not just to watch the first 15 minutes and they show Squaw Peak and there's like no houses around it. They show veterans Coliseum and like everybody sitting in like foldable chairs wearing shitty 80s clothing with yeah. their perms. And like every dude in there looks like he's a chomo with like their mustaches and everything. I mean, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny to watch. And you have a, who's on the call? It's uh Doug Sounded Collins. Familiar. Doug Collins. Is that who it was? Yeah, it was yeah, Doug Collins. Was. And yep. a, a young, right. young, young Doug Collins. Uh, so it's definitely worth going back and watching that. Uh, the Suns end up losing game five, but then they come out and they wall up the Jazz 102 to 82 in game six. Dantley only went eight for 22. And again, the Suns bounce attack. They had six guys in double figures and they out-rebounded by 12. Walter Davis had a great series. He had 24.7 points per game in the second round against the Jazz, as well as 2.7 steals per game. And he had 24% of the Suns' total scoring attack. So, I mean, it just – you go back and you look at Walter Davis, and he just – the guy always performed, man. He did. And um, coming up in the next series, he had um, – well, actually, so when I was watching this game, I watched this one after the Lakers game the Lakers okay. in the game three. Yep. And I was thinking, I'm like, cause what we saw in game three is a lot of stuff. I was kind of like, just thinking about, I feel like what you do now is you compare these players to what we have now. And it's always like Devin Booker, you know? So I was always thinking like in game three against the Lakers, uh, he kind of had a chance to pull away and help the team win. But I think he was just so tired. And you saw that in the Utah game too, uh, where he was just so exhausted. And I feel like with the way the Suns team was built, I feel like maybe they didn't think they can get offense from anywhere else, but Walter Davis, but you can see him missing six straight shots in a row in the second quarter. So it just reminded me of Booker. And then it reminded me too, what we'll talk about right now, right? With the uh, Lakers. Yeah. Because after the jazz, it was on to the Western conference finals of team that's 41 and 41 had no place being there. And there they are playing the Los Angeles Lakers in the Western conference finals. All right. So game three with the Western conference finals, you when you watch it, they start you out in the third quarter, so you don't get to see the unless you saw the first or second quarter. I didn't. I, did. <laughs> I started out in the third quarter, so I didn't get to see the first half, uh, which is not. I mean, it's not really. You don't really need to watch it, do you? I watched the Utah game. I watched all the first first half for that one, but this one, uh, like I said before, where Walter Davis reminds me of Booker, I kind of just went down and just went through his play by play a little bit, and then mm-hmm. also just the rest of the Suns. You know, it's just. Uh, First of all, the refs in this game, the close-ups and what you can hear them say and yelling at the players, was that yeah. not like the funniest thing? Oh, I know. They when they're like, get out of my face or whatever. Like, yeah, they can, can say whatever everything. they wanted. 
yeah, it was great. It was perfect. And that's what you got with basketball back then. You can hear everything. You can see the refs and everyone yelling at each other, but you can hear everything they were saying yeah. in this game. So that was my favorite part. But uh, <laughs> so, um, but well, what so, was nice about game three, though, because you got to remember, I mean, what was the series at that right then? Oh, it was one to one. It was down. The Suns were down 0-2. Or, yeah, down 0-2. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll back up a little bit real quick just to give you an idea who they were going up against. They're so going up against the Lakers, who had actually swept Eddie Johnson and the Kansas City Kings in the first round 3-0. Okay, this is the team that lost in the finals of last year. So they got a little chip on their shoulder, and they're out to prove to the world, they're like, hey, listen, you know, we might have got swept by the Philadelphia 76ers, but we're here to stay. We're showtime. We're going to win. So they come out, they beat the Mavericks 4-1 to in the second round. And the Mavericks actually had a rookie center on that team. His name was Mark West, which was interesting. Mm. And then who do the Lakers have on their team this season? Well, they got a 15th-year center in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who is still making the All-Star game every goddamn year of his career. You have Magic Johnson in his fifth year, and they're both all-NBA first-teamers. You have Michael Cooper, who was the first-team all-defensive player for this team. You have James Worthy, who's in his second year, but it's his first playoffs because he actually, in the previous season, he broke his leg in April 83 when he was playing against the Suns. So he didn't help play in the playoffs the previous year. You have a rookie, Byron Scott. You have a 32-year-old Bob McAdoo, a 25-year-old Kurt Rambis, and a 30-year-old Jamal Wilkes, who's on the back end of his career before James Worthy overtakes him. And this is a team that had been to the finals three times in the past four years, winning the whole thing twice. They're number one team in the West with a 54 and 28 record. And, you know, that's who the Suns are going against as they enter this, uh, this series. And then they go down. The Suns just – they get their asses kicked in the first two games. The first game, the Lakers won 110 to 94. The second game, the Lakers win 118 to 102. And then that's where the, the series shifts to Phoenix. And to your point, you know, game three, in my opinion – one, I'm a Suns fan, so I'm going to say that this is the best game of the series because we won it. But two, it was really exciting because it was so high scoring. The Suns won 135 to 127. I mean, all the starters played fantastic. You had Larry Nance, who played all 48 minutes. He had 23 and 12. You had Walter Davis, who had 24. Uh, Mo Lucas was back in the starting lineup because they had taken him out for some reason in the second game. And he had 19 points and 17 boards. And they ended up uh, winning that game, which was great. Yeah, and it went to overtime. And I feel like every overtime uh, postseason game we get to see on uh, NBA.com or YouTube, those are the yeah. ones that are usually posted. Um, a lot of it was Walter Davis, though. I mean, he went missing the last six minutes of this game. Yeah. He came back in with six minutes, uh, from what I could tell, because they don't show the clock. So I'm just going to say it's six minutes uh, because nowadays, you know, we don't put our stars back in until two minutes left. <laughs> so a uh, – so it got heated. Like he said, this was – they were down 0-2, even though I thought it was 1-1. to But it was, they were down 0-2. And you can tell, like, they, they thought they had a chance in this game. And they did. They pushed it to overtime. And uh, Davis just couldn't make any shots. Then he yeah. makes this crazy layup. Yeah. On, the up and under move on the rim. It's just, like, out of nowhere. Uh, so that really got them back in the game. And then uh, also, too – you saw from what I saw, I always just thought like the refs kind of had it out for the Suns. There was a time there when I was like, what are you guys doing? You forget you're watching this game that was 30 years ago. Yeah. And you kind of think you're just like, 
you're like, are the refs going for the Lakers? But then it kind of turns around the other way to where they call like Kareem Abdul, Kareem Abdul-Javar for like a legal defense, mm-hmm. but he airballs it. This was like a weird part of the game where he airballed the shot and they call him a legal defense. And you can hear the ref. He says they can't count the bucket when they wave it a legal defense. So basically they gave him the two points, even though he airballed it, and then yeah. the Suns got the ball. Did you see that was really strange? Yeah, I I've never seen that in my life. That. And you have the ref standing there and you can hear him explain it and you still don't get it. Yeah, you still don't but yeah. like I feel like the commentators are like, oh, okay. So it must have been a rule back then. Yeah. But I I had no idea. Um, but um Macy takes over in overtime. Yep. Two yep. quick hoops, goes three for three. Yeah. Uh two great shots from Davis taking a four point lead, and then the Suns take over and win it. Yep. They go on and win the game by eight. And I mean, it just, it looked fantastic. You know, there was some hope again, of course the series, uh, you know, the Lakers come back and they beat the Suns one twenty six to one fifteen, And in that was game five, or I'm sorry, game four. And then game five, the Suns get another win this time in LA and they win one twenty six to one twenty two. And Walter Davis has a good game. He's 21 points, 10 assists, all Suns starters had over 20 points in the, in game five against the Lakers. Magic and Kareem did their thing like they always do. Worthy had 23 off the bench, but no other Laker had double figures. And again, the Suns had all their starters with 20 points. They're 60% from the field. And there's, again, hope it's a 3-2 series. Uh, but then game six happens and the Lakers beat the Suns 99-97 to in Phoenix. And the Suns were actually up one entering the fourth quarter of that game. And they missed a last-second shot that would have tied it. But you can't find video or record of who took that shot anywhere. You yeah. can't find that footage anywhere. I looked everywhere I could for game six of the 1984 Western Conference Finals. You couldn't find anything because I, I wanted to watch that game too. And yeah. you know, thus ends the improbable run for the Suns. One of the most interesting statistics I saw when I was looking at this entire series was in game two, the Suns had 25 total assists. Magic Johnson had 24. Oh my God. He had eight points in 24. I mean, you go back and you watch this, these games and these, you know, snippets that you can find. And it's just, it gives you such appreciation for Magic Johnson and how he played and how dominant of a player he truly was because he, he ran that offense like a well-oiled machine. And to your point, one of the issues that the Suns kind of had is they, they weren't a well-oiled machine. They were, they were a physical machine and they built themselves to try to beat the Lakers with physicality but it was the finesse ultimately coupled with the size of the Lakers that was the downfall for the Suns that year. Yeah, and especially on the road, man, because you even said it during the regular season, they couldn't pull it out yep. on the road, and then postseason killed them too. But then when you're playing a team like the Lakers, it just all comes together where it's an end to the Cinderella season. And I even looked up too, like the best – worst teams to make mm-hmm. the playoffs especially making a conference finals yeah uh, i looked it up really quick bleacher report actually had them at number seven on a top 10 list i was wow. surprised yeah um so i'm surprised they actually made a list you know what so people actually know this team they actually studied a little bit and they went back in history and they're like wow the 41 and 41 suns made the western conference finals that has to make the front page news respect. so they did yeah some respect um but also just Watching these games, I, I really realized I can watch this basketball. It's very quick. Um, I had it on 1.2 speed sometimes, so it was really super fast. But 
<laughs> just going at normal speed. I feel like I can watch this basketball. There's nothing wrong with it. It was very fast paced. The refs made a call. The players moved on. There's not a whole lot of arguing. And that's there what really I isn't. I love There's, that. I don't remember one th- except for when the refs are yelling at the. Yeah, the but it's the other, it's the other way face. around. It's not like the yeah. players complain. Like the players complain a little bit to the refs. The refs are like get out of my face. You know, like yeah. it's totally different. And it to was. your point, it's very consumable basketball. It's not, you know, they're not jacking up threes left and right, but it's technically sound basketball. Good, a lot of screens. It's all about yeah. screens and trying to create what little space they could down in the lane. And it's fun to watch. It's not like you go back to the 80s and because it's, there's not a lot of threes and it's, you know, you feel like it's a slower paced game that the end of the, the final score of the games are like 68 to 65. No, the yeah. Suns won 135 to 127, man. There were points of everywhere. Yeah, and like I said before, there were teams that averaged 120 points a season, man. Yeah. And it's and they weren't even shooting threes. And so it's I mean, they say right now, you know, it's faster pace, more scoring, but it was the same back then. And you even can even see it from Devin Booker's game where he's not even shooting the three, but he's still scoring 30 points a game just because he's well efficiently shooting the ball, especially from two-point land. So I was thinking that um, I can watch this basketball all day long. I thought it was great. And you you don't have the reviews either. You don't have any reviews to slow it down. No yeah. one really argued with the calls if it was out of bounds on whoever. They just kept – they ran to the other side of the court and kept playing. And I loved that. It was awesome. Yeah, I did too. It was a nice pace of play. Yeah. You know, it was very fun to watch. You know, the, the way the season ended essentially is the Lakers would go on. They lost in seven games to Larry Bird and the Celtics. And the Suns would finish the next season 36 and 46, which was still good enough for the eight seed, but they get swept by the Lakers in the first round in 85. And actually that team, the, the 1984-85 team that won, won only 36 games, is the worst team in Suns history to ever make a playoffs. This is the second worst team record-wise to make a playoffs, and mm. I feel like they did the most with the least. Other than the 1975-76 finals, because that team uh, was 42 and 40. So, but this is the team that was 41 wins and made it all the way to the Western Conference Finals, improbably going through Portland, going through Utah, and just happened to run into the buzzsaw that was the Showtime Lakers mid 80s when they were just priming up to be the best, one of the best teams of all time. And yeah, it was like right in the middle of them. Well, they always made the finals. I feel like every year. Yeah, <laughs> like they we did. Were caught right in the middle of the of the tornado there. Yeah. Um. But and then also John McLeod, he doesn't really last any longer on the team, being the head coach. Yeah. Uh. He two seasons later is replaced by Dick Van Arsdale, and then Conrad Simmons the next season after that. Yeah. So I mean, this. Oh, is I'm kind sorry. Of, two seasons after that was Conrad Simmons. The end of McLeod's era, who's one of the best coaches in Suns history, because he had just so much success with the team, and a lot of that goes back to Jerry Colangelo. I mean, he was a great GM who, like I said earlier, hit on a lot of picks, and I just still don't understand the thought process on giving up Dennis Johnson. Because again, yeah, you're trying to get more size, but at the same time, you have one of the best defensive guards in the league who ends up winning the finals with the Celtics. And starting for him, who's guarding Magic an Johnson and being an all-star. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, and we got, you know, some backup uh, center. So he, here it is, 36 years later, I'm still bitching probably like our parents did when that trade went down. Yeah, they had to have, man. The guy, uh, I even forget his name already, Rick Posley, whatever. <laughs> he, he averaged like four points a season, man. So I don't, I don't even know what they were thinking there. Any final thoughts on the 83-84 Sun squad? No, just it's watchable. Um, so, yes, I do. I didn't mean to say no. Uh, it's watchable basketball. So, 
if you have the time, just watch these games and we'll have more to come too. I feel like on future podcasts. Yeah. Again, this is something that Matthew brought up to me and I think it's a great idea is going back and taking a look at some of the less known teams. I mean, we could sit here and do an entire podcast on the 92, 93 team, but everybody knows them. I want to know the entire franchise that is the Phoenix suns through all their, their few successes and all their failures and really have an understanding of, who and what we are as a franchise. And this is a banner team that everybody was uh, shocked by. And yeah, you know, it was really fun. Like you said, do yourself a favor, go back and try to watch some of these games. You know, I'd really think that the next team we should talk about is like the 88, 89 team or the 90 or the 89, 90 team. Cause those yeah. teams both, I believe made the Western conference finals and those had like KJ and Tom chambers. And you might be able to see a little bit more on YouTube on those guys. Yeah, we should do that one. And you even mentioned the 0405 season. I don't know why, but that seemed really interesting because people don't talk about that. Well, no, the, how the, close they came. The 0506 team. 0506. Yeah, the next year, like when they lost to the Mavs four to two in the Western yeah, Conference Finals. Let's talk about. We them never too. talk about them, so we don't. Yeah, we'll bring some of those up uh, again. Thanks for listening to the Suns Jam session. You can always hit us up on Twitter at Suns Jam. My Twitter handle is at Darth Voida. Matthew. At Matthew Lissy. Hit us up. Let us know what you think of the pod. You can always email us, sunsjamsession at gmail.com. We appreciate you taking your time and learning a little bit about the 1983-1984 Phoenix Sun Squad. Thanks for joining, everybody. This is Matthew Lissy, and uh, stay home and love your family. Yeah.